Ketov, uh, today's daf is daf Zion, and we're all caught up, and we start at the top of Zion Amaralif at the Mishnah. Okay, so we had an interesting Mishnah, which was um, about uh, when um, a woman remains forbidden to eat truma, but it was really a, a sort of a Mishnah about when you would not go through with the procedure. Um, when there were Adam in Medina Sayyam, when she admitted, and so on. And as we'll see, that's going to be somewhat of a necessary background, because now we're going to deal with the next steps in the procedure, and uh, now we already know the things that could prevent the procedure from going forward. So let's take a look here at the next Mishnah. And now we actually begin a nice description of how the procedure would look like. Okay? So this is more descriptive than it is going to be halachic. You know, sort of making halachic rulings. Obviously, the, the implicit sort of halach is here, but it's going to much more be a descriptive. This Mishnah, a big Mishnah at the bottom of the daf. Let's take a look. Ketar Osala. What would you do with her? Once it's... Um, um, once it's... Uh, oh, this stupid thing. It's about to hold on a second. I apologize. This thing wants to reboot itself on me. Now, people might think you're talking about the woman. It's like one long sentence. All right. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what to do. This is going to reboot itself on me. You know what? I'm just going to let it reboot, and then I'll, I'll restart the video. Okay. So. Um, um, all right. So, um, all right. So, what would you, Osala, What would you do to her when you know when uh, you have to now? Um, she went in. She was warned, and she went into seclusion, and now she has the status of a sota. And now we have to go through with the process. So, You bring her to the beitin in that locale. Um, now, again, notice, um, and this is the point that I've been making from the beginning, that we have taken something which in the Torah is the, based as the husband sort of jealousy and we have now made it a judicial matter. Um, we have witnesses and evidence, that, circumstantial evidence, things that make us sort of feel that we have to, we, the Beitin, have to determine what her status is. It's no longer about the husband. So the first place to bring it, in the Torah, of course, she's brought to the Beis Amikdash, directly for the ritual. But here, the first, uh, loca- the first place she's brought is the Beitin. And by, by doing that, by making that to be, you know, what do you do in this case? You bring her to a Beitin, right? So it makes it a, that clear statement that this is about din, right? So you, so that's the place where she's brought to a beitin. So you bring it to the local beitin, and what does that beitin do? Now that beitin takes over in terms of you know the um, the uh, supervising the whole procedure. And here's what they do. Um, um, yes, you've been, as I understand, you've been trying to say that that uh, we're taking. What the Gemara is trying to do is take it out of the realm of the husband's, you know, discretion. Discretion and yeah. basically, but isn't it also possible that what they're trying to do is taking it out of the discretion of the or the control uh, of the client? Yes, yeah. yes. So thank you for pointing that out. I was sort of both of those are correct. Meaning you're taking something, and that happens a lot, you know, which is that Chazal basically. Um, I mean, we can even just start with the fact that the whole authority of Chazal and Beitin is based on the pasuk of which in the Torah is El HaKohanim the El HaShofet Asher Yeba Yamim Mahein but the Kohanim are much more dominant in the plural than the Shofet by Mahein but Chazal very often sort of assert their authority right especially if you realize right at the time of the Beit HaMikdash clearly the authority much more resided amongst the Kohanim than amongst the Rabbis but Chazal constantly in describing you know those realities asserting their authority so for example they speak about a basin which determine, you know, wh- whether a Kohen was fit for Avoda 
or not, when a question had come up about his, you know, about his uh, yichus and so on. So you are absolutely correct that there's also that element. So it's taking something which is about the husband's passion, unfounded, you know, discretion, and about the basin, and about the kohanim, and it's doing two things. It's right. And by putting it into the basin, it's making it objective, based on circumstance, based on testimony and evidence, and taking it away from the kohanim, and ultimately putting it under the authority of the basin. So both of those are correct. Um, so, um, um, now, by the way, Going back to those, what, what, what those point, most of the Chachamim might have an echo for some people about what happens at the era of Yom Kippur when they have the, the Kohen Gadol is getting ready to, you know, learn, you know, to prepare for the Avodah Hayom. And that's a perfect example where if you read the description in Yoma, the Beitin is overseeing that whole process. And the Beitin is most Chachamim and they're the ones that talk to, you know, teach him Torah the whole night and keep him up the whole night. And they also, you know, make can make an oath that he's not going to change the Seder Avodah. So that's like a perfect example about Basin being the ones to be Chazal, supervise what's going on in the Beit HaMikdash. But it's ex- actually exactly that phrase of Moshin Lo Shnei Tamidei Chachamim. So interestingly, you have the same thing here. So what do they do? They hand over two Torah sages to the husband, Shema Yavo Aleha Baterech. And they are going to be their escorts and the, um, what's it called? Uh, the uh, uh, chaperones. The reminders. The reminders uh, to accompany them and bring them to Yerushalayim. Now, by the way, for those who are wondering, the next stop in Yerushal- is not Yerushalayim Beit HaMikdash. And guess where the next stop is? Yerushalayim to the... What else no, is there? Pidin HaGadol. That's in the Beit HaMikdash. But that's the next stop. Okay, so from one basin, sending them to be, you know, sending them off to the Supreme Court. Okay, so it's one basin to another basin. But the very fact also that there are these two uh, agents of the basin that are accompanying them is sort of based in sort of being part of the whole At no stage is this now the husband is schlepping his wife. Right, the husband is dragging his wife. No, 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 no. We, the Beitin, are sending this case to be processed, and our agents are going along with, and we're the ones essentially bringing, um, bringing her. Um, and we'll see a little bit about that tension in the Gemara. And to the point that, um, the point that it says, Shemi Yavoah We're afraid that, why are they accompanying? Because maybe he'll have sex with her along the way. Um, and why would that be a problem? Well, because she's a Sota, and she's forbid- your uh, husband and wife are forbidden to have sex once she has the status of a Sota, until, well, it's, cla- until it's clarified. And, right, we don't just, so stam, we care about everybody's availers, but no, but then the waters won't work. It'll undermine the whole process, right, because we learn out that it's only when the man is, is clean from sin will the waters be effective. So in order to ensure that this is going to work and be effective, we have to now supervise. But it makes the man again, notice what it does. Like, it really makes the man now an object of suspicion and he can't now ruin everything and again so we're we really debating are now taking control and making sure it's going to happen as opposed to being about the man and his wife you know the man's initiative and what he wants to do to his wife you had a question Sanhedrin yeah that's right right exactly okay Reb Yehudo Mer Ba'alan Ne'eman now Reb Yehudo yes Yes, in, well, went to Yerushalayim to the Beit Hamikdash, and in the in the Beit Hamikdash was the Beitin Hagadol, was the Sanhedrin. They had a, there what? 
had to go there anyway to do the wine. Well, they're going to be going there anyway, but yes, but the way Chazal sort of, because of the making it about Beitin, you know, that, then everything is going to first, is first local Beitin, from there to Beitin Hagadol, and there the Beitin Hagadol is essentially going to hand it over to the Kohanim for, you know, for the ritual. Now, we'll see how central and necessary the Beitin Hagadol is, so we'll get to that, yes. So, in addition to um, the Chachamim managing and controlling, let's say, um, the authority of the passions of the husband, right? Right. She's jealous now he's going to have affairs, he's going to have uh, relations with her. Right. Would you also say that it's the Chachamim's way of dealing more rationally with magic? The same way of like Nechoshet, like the Nechoshet? Oh. Well, possibly, but they, you, they don't get away from the fact that there is going to be a ritual that's going to yeah, prove yeah, it. But, you're, but, you, but what you're saying is that by forefronting the Beitin's role, it sort of, it backgrounds the ritual, and as we're going to see, they're constantly trying to do things so they don't have to get to the ritual. So that's a good point, too. It does put in the back Background, the whole focus on this yeah. on this sort of magical yeah, procedure. Theory, the ritual works, but there's right, exactly, and that's the other thing that happens. There's so many reasons that the ritual doesn't work. That you know that um, we heard yesterday that Rabbi Shimon was afraid that that would undermine the efficacy of the ritual. The reality is, it does undermine the efficacy of the ritual, right? And it's a way of you know possibly explaining why the ritual sometimes wouldn't work if there's all these other reasons. But it's also a way I think what Dov, uh, Dov, the second Dov said. <laughs> It's also a good point that, you know, it, 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 it shifts our focus from the ritual. All of this thing about centralizing based in, right, does, has all of those types of effects. Did you have a question? No? Okay. All right. So, let's now see the Gemara. It's really fun, this stuff. Okay. So, it says like this. Trey, um, the Ihu, so we're going to try to figure out why you needed two uh, representatives of the court. Okay. Trey, the Ihu, Hatlasa. So, two of the representatives of the chaperones and the husband that makes three men there. Let's say this supports Rav. When do we say that there is a halacha? Uh, this is now going about uh, based on a teaching in Kiddushin that, um, that a mission Kiddushin that speaks about an Isra Yichud, an Isra of a woman being in seclusion with a man. This is not about the case of the husband warning. This is just the general Isra of Yichud, a concern of a man and a woman shouldn't be in seclusion together if they're not husband and wife because they might lead to illicit sex. You're again, married, not married, whatever. So anyway, so the question there is that it wouldn't be seclusion if there were two men. So let's, but here there's three men. So let's say, why do we need three? Why didn't you just send one Talmud Chacham? So the says, maybe this supports what Rav says. That when do we say that two men and a woman is not considered seclusion? Again, for general laws of Yichud, if it's in a city. If you're going on the way, on a journey, you need three. Why do you need three? One person's going to have to go to the bathroom, okay? And again, presumably in the city, that would be some, a, a, a circumstance that would not have to take him away too far. Um, but here, you know, but uh, but here, you know, maybe they could have the other two people wait a few feet away from the bathroom or but something. Other people around them. But here, left in the city. Well, no, no, because we're saying that these are the only people around. That's how we're measuring whether it constitutes hichud or not. But if you're in the city, you go to some outhouse or wherever you go. I don't know exactly what 
setups they had. But anyway, but the, the other two people are, the, the, the remaining man and the woman are a few, you know, feet away. But if you're out in the middle of nature, right, you want to go into the forest a little bit, a little bit of privacy, so you're going to get a little bit further away. And that's going to leave the two behind in the case, uh, in, in, in the scenario of Yichud. Oh, maybe that's true also. Like, similar to what Rabbi Dove said, you could make arrangements that somebody take your place. Maybe that's true too. You make arrangements somebody take your place. Okay. One person has to go to the bathroom. And then the other man is left together with this woman who is uh, forbidden, not his wife. So that's, so you see, that's what, that would explain why we need two Tamidei Chachamim because they're going on a journey and they need to be three yeah, men. Nothing to do with Erev necessarily. Just any man or any woman. She's not Right. So the question is, what about, yeah, about Pani and Pnuya if she's not a Nida? Let's not worry about that. We'll do it when we do Kiddushin. So the man says, Lo, No, maybe, maybe that's true, maybe it's not true, but we can otherwise explain why you need two. You need two that they should be witnesses. Now what do they need to be witnesses for? What are they testifying to? So Rashi points out that they would be testify to the fact that if he went ahead and did have sex with his wife, that they're now going to come and say, we cannot go through with the proceedings. He, the man had sex with his wife. Okay? And you would presumably need a normal uh, evidence, you know, normal standard of testimony to prove that. Eidechot is believed to say she had sex. It wouldn't be believed to say she had sex with the man she was suspected of. Not that they husband and wife had sex on the journey. So, so the whole point is to make sure this doesn't happen and then to treat it appropriately if it does happen. So you need the two to serve as witnesses. Uh, so the Gemara says, now the Gemara has another question. Tell me the Chachamim in... that this man is speaking with this woman in the middle of the road while the other one's going to the... Yeah, or, or at an inn. No, 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 no. We're no longer in the Yichud case. Whatever. They, 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 they sleep over the night. They find an inn and uh, he sneaks off to, into her room and they're having sex. Okay? So that we want to make sure that if that happens we're going to know A, it doesn't, we want to make sure it doesn't happen and B, if it does happen we're going to know about it and not go through with the procedure. So the Gemara now says So you're not going to take off there are two people in his room with him two of the mammals No, 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 no we are no longer doing the, the two for Yichud we need the two so that they will be able to testify and we will be able to stop the procedure okay there's two different concerns right one is I mean well that's two different but one is is that will it be um, you know, will this generally prevent them from having sex because there's because there's chaperones? And then the question is, in order for that, is one sufficient or do we need two if they're going on a journey? We don't know the answer to that. You could argue either way. But even if one would have been sufficient to, as a general rule, prevent sex and not consider yichud, people that are committed to making something happen will make it happen and you want to make sure that there are witnesses to testify if in the end it did happen. All right? When, 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 when it not be believed to say that husband had sex with the Correct. Okay. Okay? All right. So, um, so now the Gemara says like this. So only Torah sages, not others. Now what's, what's that about? Like if you just need witnesses, you know, just ten, send two people. Now the obvious point I think is that this is to emphasize based in supervision, based in presence. These are like, they're not just Stam people learning a yeshiva. Presumably they're learners of Torah associated with the based in, like, you know, sort of a, so they're part of the, um, and therefore, um, that it's emphasized. 
Maybe. Okay, that's true. But anyway, that's what I would say, that it emphasizes based in supervision. Let's see what the Gemara says. Maybe this is what's the other statement of Rav. That when is it that it's not considered Yichud when they are people of sort of, of a, you know, upstanding character? But if it's people that are known to be uh, loose with uh, in sexual matters, um, and it's interesting, who do you put in which category, um, then even ten men with a woman can't, won't be trusted not to have sex. There's a case actually that they snuck a woman out of a, out of a city on, on a bed and there were ten men and it, was to, and it was in order to have sex. I don't know if it means that all ten were engaged in the sexual act. I hope not. Maybe it does. But anyway, but it certainly means that, that, other, that if people are not, uh, you know, are considered parutes, uh, what's the word, licentious or, uh, you know, in sexual matters, then it doesn't matter if there are other men around. So, the men, the men, specifically the men. The idea being that we're not afraid that this one man and woman will have sex in the presence of another man. That's why it's not yichud. So it's saying, but if the other man or uh, is is somebody that you know is like uh, has no sexual boundaries, which is sort of the idea of parutz, then that won't be a restraint. Then they, the man and woman could have sex even in the presence of uh, ten other men. They won't mind if these men are prutzim. So maybe that's why we need tamidei chachamim. Now, not to, I think to suggest that anybody who's not a tamid chacham is a parutz, but this like it hopefully ensures that we're not dealing with prutzim, and maybe that's what the issue is about. So the man says, "Lo." No, now they'll know to give him hatra'ah. So hatra'ah, now we're back to like classic din, like witnesses and warning. So why do we need to give him hatra'ah? So Rashi says, well, you know, if a man violates the prohibition or woman of having sex while she's a sota, we, we're going to learn out that that's a biblical prohibition and he would be deserving of lashes. So now we want to send these tamid chachamim because they'll be, know the halacha and they'll be able that if he's about to do it to give him hatra'ah. Now this is very bizarre, right? All of a sudden, we worry that somebody, we want to ensure that somebody's going to get lashes if they deserve it. Like, it's one thing in the concepts, we want to make sure that the SOTA process continues properly, and he, that they don't do an act that's going to interfere with it. And that if they do, we'll be able to know about it and interrupt it. But why is it important for us to make sure that he gets the malchus that he deserves? Um, and again, I don't think that, I think ultimately, it's probably not so important, but it, what it does is it again, sort of really says this is about din. What's din about? Witnesses who can give warning, who can make sure you're going to get lashes if you do it. It sort of, it really forefronts the whole din part of the proceedings. If we have witnesses, which I think are specifically as sort of a mini type of a basin, representatives of the court who can give warning, and that again, really makes it all about an ongoing process of din. Yes, but still, I'm not sure we would always make, want to, you know, proactively make sure that people are going to get Hatra'ah so they can get punished for the Yisurim that they do. So, again, I just think that bringing Hatra'ah to the forefront is a way of bringing the idea of Din to the forefront. Yes? It's not about making sure we have it clear that he violated Lo and then we can't go through the proceeding. Like, even if we didn't, he didn't have warning, we still wouldn't go through if we had to uh, no, I, I mean, it, it would not matter whether he got warning or not. The the violation would be enough to not go through. So the only purpose of Hatra'ah... Because then it wouldn't be a full... No, no, it would be biblical. It's just that a biblical violation without the without warning you know, isn't deserving of lashes. But that would be the only difference. Okay. All right, so now we'll continue. Finally, getting the uh, video here starting. Um, okay, so continuing here on... Um, 
on Zayin Amad Aleph. We pick up at the two dots. Oh, so we just mentioned that you need the two, uh, not just to prevent, to get out of a normal Yichud situation, but also to serve as witnesses and to be able to, to serve as warning. Again, asserting based in sort of supervision over the whole process and presence in the whole process. Uh, take a look also at Tosos. Interesting Tosos I wanted to mention. Tosos says, Ki Tosos says, Okay, so when you send somebody to an ear miklat who killed by accident, um, you, as he's accompanied with two tamid chachamim, lest the uh, goel hadam attacks the sky baderech. Now, Notice of this really interesting mm-hmm. comparison because on the first day we were learning Sota I pointed out that you have these two cases in the Torah mm-hmm. where a start as vigilante justice or taking the law into your own hands type of a thing and Chazal and the Torah work to bring it under some form of control. So the biggest example of the, of the, the cases of the Torah doing it is about the Goel Hadam with the accidental murder, right? And the Torah actually does what the Torah does to that is what Chazal are doing to the Sota, right? It says the Shalchuziknei Rov Elachuoso you know, that they send him to the Irmiklat, they retrieve him from the Irmiklat, Adam Do Lisneham, you know, what is it, Lisneha? What? No, no, no. This is not going to be vigilante justice. The Bastin is going to take control. They're going to control the whole proceedings and so on, right? So Sota, I think some of you mentioned, maybe there was the first step in that in the Torah that it took it out of honor killings and made it about a procedure in the base of Mikdash. And then Chazal takes it to the next step to make it about Din. But notice you have a similar parallel that by the Aremi Klot, you make sure that the person is accompanied with Shnei Tamidei Chachamim, right? So again, the Bastin's presence throughout the whole process by the Arei Miklat and their presence throughout the whole process here by Sosa. And Sosa just points out there, the Gemara says, why two Tamidei Chachamim? The Gemara, my love, the Asrubei di Katobar Katalahu, the two Tamidei Chachamim are necessary, so if the Goal Adam is about to kill this guy, they'll be able to kill the Goal Adam. Okay, again, to give Hatra'ah. So the Gemara says, So Tosa says, well, based on the way the Gemara explains both of those cases being about Hatra'ah, you need Tamidei Chachamim. Now, I don't know, we've never heard before, you dafka need Tamidei Chachamim it might say that Tamidei Chachamim ensure that they know what to do but it doesn't mean that a Hatra'ah by a non-Talmud Chacham wouldn't count but what I really wanted to show you was how stark the parallel here is between these two cases about the based in ensuring that it's about a basin type of a procedure yes there are also two cases that parallel in terms of the situations of great passion uh, right. That's a very good point. Here. And that element of passion and us sort of calming everything down and right, exactly, right. So all these things are there, right? Taking it away from sort of the passionate individual vigilante, you know, making it judicial, it's calming everybody down, making our presence, and as we said before, taking it out of being like based in asserting that even a mikdash type of a ritual, ultimately it's about, you know, Chazal and the Tamidei Chacham and Beitin are the ones that ultimately are central to it. And, you know, the base of mikdash is under their authority, you know, which also we've seen, like as I mentioned, by the Shnei Tamidei Chachamim, you know, by the, uh, like, by, by Avodos Yom Kippurim. It's so funny there, like, the whole thing is a base, is a base of Mikdash ritual. It's all about the centrality of the Eze Mikdash and the way the Gemara describes, the mission describes, right, the Avodos Yom Kippurim is based in his overseeing the whole process. All right. This is really, the point I think is really powerful. According to the framework you're laying out, yeah. the whole thing is Chazal's attempt to impose a rational control 
over sort of crimes of passion, revenge and, right. adultery and, je- and revenge and jealousy. Yeah, I think it's a great, great point. Okay, so now the message is like this. So if you don't mere ba'ala ne'amana the husband is believed, which means that um, you don't need the two tamidah chachamim. We trust that he will not uh, have sex with her. Okay, but that again is not just we'll trust not have sex. It changes the dynamics a lot. It means that during, like how, what's the experience when they're leaving their town and going to Yerushalayim? Is the experience based in is now bringing this woman to judgment? Or is the experience the husband, the jealous husband is now bringing his wife? Right? So the, I think it makes a huge difference whether you have the presence of the two Tamidei Chachamim there. So let's see what Rabbi Yehuda says. Tani, we turn to Brisa, Rabbi Yehuda Omer. Bala Neman, Neman, We can trust her not to have sex with her from a Kavach What's a Kavach Omer? Nida, which is, the punishment is kareg, very weighty transgression. We trust the husband and wife to sleep together in the same room and not to have sex. So sota she belava sota, which is a simple negative prohibition of, of husband and wife having sex when she's in this suspected state. So which we'll learn it out later where that's from. Lokolshke, now much more so. Can we trust him to be not to not to tr- transgress? Rabbanan, the rabbis would say, um, no, that argument that you said is exactly the argument why we don't trust him. Nida's very weighty. It's kares. He's gonna, he'll be careful about that. We can trust him. Sota, the love, Sota, which is a simple negative prohibition. It's not so weighty. We won't trust him to keep to it. Reb Yehuda, want to back his argument from a Kavachomer. The man shall bring the wife. And again, notice, right, this is who, how is the process conceived? Is it the man bringing the wife or based in bringing her? So, Biblically, the man brings the wife. But the sages said, No, we have to have these sages in order lest he, lest he have sex. That's position number one, right, which it sounds like our Mishnah. But again, it, it also shows the contrast of how this is a, becomes a different process than the one in the Torah. Rabbi Yossi, Omer, Rabbi Yossi says, So what we had in the Brita was Rabbi Yehuda's Kavachomer, and in, in, in this Brita is Rabbi Yossi's Kavachomer. Okay, no, the Kavachomer. If you can be trusted by Nida, how much more so if you trusted by Sota? Amulah, they said back to now it's Rabbiosi. Lo, no. By Nida, you can be trusted because after she goes to the mikvah, you know, she'll be permissible to him again. It's, uh, so, you know, it's a regular type of a uh, cycle there. Um, but Tomer, by the Sota, if it turns out that she's guilty, um, there's no, uh, you know, there's no, she'll, she'll never be permitted. So, so he maybe he figures this is his last chance. Okay, so number one that that uh, even you know b- uh, besides the fact that they said before that because it's not as weighty he'll be more ready to transgress, but because also he you know it's maybe more permanent he'll be more ready to transgress. The Omer and in addition there's another idea, thing going on here. taku stolen waters is sweet. Now Tosfos says why did you need this this second one? So Tosfos says because maybe you'll say look you know he's had sex with her before how could you say it's such a sense of urgency no now that she's forbidden 
hidden, maybe that even makes it a little bit, more, you know, you know, more attractive, uh, more, uh, more of a seduction. So, of a temptation, I should say. So, tempted. So, so anyway, so that's how they pushed back and said why it is important. So now we have Rabbi Yossi arguing the Kavachomer, and let's see what, now let's see what Rabbi Yehuda says. Rabbi Yehuda, in the first brighter was the Kavachomer, let's see what he says here. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Torah no, from the Torah the man does it. So, and now, he says, no, look, it's enough for the man to bring it. End of story, it's in the Torah. So, what about the Kavachomer? In the first bright, he had a Kavachomer. Here he just quotes the Pasuk. So the Gemara says, Now, first he argued the Kavachomer, like Reb Yossi did. And then they pushed back, and they said, said it wasn't a good Kavachomer. So then he said, fine, forget the Kavachomer. But let's just go back to the Tzukim. It's the man. It's not the basin. End of story. Okay, so now the Gemara says, Reb one minute, the Tanakhama also conceded that from the Torah's perspective, it's the man. So how are they different? They're all admitting that from the Torah's perspective, it's the man. So the Mar says, the obvious difference, the little difference, which is a big difference, no, the difference is, is whether Chazal did something to change it. Okay, everybody concedes from the Torah's perspective, it's the man bringing his wife. The question is, did the rabbi say, yes, that's from the Torah, but we're going to now go ahead and do something to change it. And Rabbi Yudha says, I don't want you to change the procedure. Okay, now it's very interesting is, the way the Gemara frames it is, is that Rabbi Yehuda concedes that maybe there is some basis to be afraid they'll have sex. But nevertheless, let's not mess with it the way the Torah has described it. Which might push that, you know, Rabbi Yehuda is trying to say, I don't want to change the nature of the whole process to the degree that, you ima- that you're, you're changing it. I want to keep it a little closer to its biblical origins, you know? With the husband sort of, uh, you know, being the one to uh, be the sort of initiator or the one who's really the driver of the whole thing. Right? Now, it's interesting to ask, let me just check quickly here. Um, no, okay, fine. So anyway, let's, so, so let's see now the next Mishnah. But that becomes, again, that I think that really does change the nature of how the process is, is uh, the whole dynamic of the process. It's interesting that no one said we should leave these two people alone for that long length of time. Like, well, Rabbi Huda says we can leave them alone. No, I, like, sorry, not in the sense of having, not in the sense of them, like, deciding to have sex, but, but hurting each other, or... Oh, I see. <laughs> or running away, because they really don't want to go do... Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. Maybe... Oh, that's an interesting question. Like, why aren't we afraid? That's a really good point, because if the woman is sort of in a position of a, like, of, of, of a suspect, right? So uh, why are we not afraid that, they'll, that she'll try to escape? Right, right, right. <laughs> right, right. How about the possibility they may want to make up? Yeah. Like, this, this, oh, but that's okay. No, that's okay. No, it, it's not okay. Once she's a sota, making up won't work because they can't have sex because they still can't have sex. before he declares her a sota, like someone should have educated him to, to the ramifications of the whole process. Right. Calm down now. Now he's over the past. Right. They're going look together. What he, now look what he got. Here. Yeah. Well, I think that's part of this thing. They're saying, "What did we do? We exactly." Right. Well, that's in a way. If you remember going back to the first staff of the Gemara, the question was like Asherlikanos, the opinion of Asherlikanos. One of the reasons, or certainly Bisman Hazeh, was you'll get yourself stuck and then you can't, you know, retract. I have to tell you, by the way, and not exactly this, but very similarly, these types of things happen today. I mean, I know of a case, a man suspected his wife of committing adultery. So what did he do? He went ahead and he hired a private eye and he got all of this evidence, you know, photographs and the whole thing, and then they wanted to make up. But then there's a big problem according to Halacha, because if you've got that amount of evidence, right, then forget suspected adultery, like that was known adultery, right? How do you, how do you, 
how do you get, you know, if it's just a woman who's admitting to her husband, there's tricks you can talk about that you technically have to believe her. But, you know, sometimes you get yourself into a real bind. So, it's absolutely correct. Now, by saying that he had to have witnesses at the stage of the warning, right, so hopefully that formalizes the process of warning, which means that he'll take a moment to pause before it. And remember, in the Mishnah, while the Gemara quoted a bright of an opinion that you didn't need witnesses for the warning, in the Mishnah, both opinions required witnesses for the warning. So hopefully at that stage, by formalizing that process, it'll be a moment to pause. But you're right, he can get himself totally stuck. But your point is also a really good one, right? You know, because at some degree, she's not yet a fully suspected person. You know, I guess it's a good question in general, right? What happens, you know, with somebody who's suspected of, in the middle of a court proceeding, of like, do we have a discussion of somebody essentially like being in jail? You know, let's, a simple case, right? Witnesses come and say, Ruben killed Shimon, and, you know, you're going through the whole court case. Is there an assumption? Like, what do you do with him during the process of the, of the court? Yeah, it's a good point. Um, okay, so let's take a look at the next Mishnah. Um, they would bring her to the now so go from one basin to the next basin right not straight to the base of Mikdash now it is true that the base of Yerushalayim was in the base of Mikdash but that's not the focus okay and they scare her um, like they would scare people to come to testify about um, what do you call it about uh, capital crimes so what they do somebody who's coming to testify capital crimes they really want to make sure that they're not lying so firstly like, they scare the wits out of them like in, you know if you think if you're like not totally certain what you say maybe you're filling in some gaps you know you're a little bit estimating or whatever you should know you know that if this person dies on account of your testimony which isn't totally true his, you know basically you'll be you know you'll have filled his blood you'll be responsible for future generations like they scare the wits out of them and then what they do though is they say on the other hand <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you really do know what you're doing and you don't testify it'll also be a terrible thing so basically like you know trying to make sure that if they can't if they are going to be you know good witnesses they will testify but if there's a little bit of a question that they won't testify so they sort of scare them both ways. So here, they're going to scare her. So again, notice the emphasis of how much we're making it like din. Right? Like we scare there, we scare here. You know, It's a different type of a purpose of the scaring. But again, all of these parallels are explicitly being drawn. So let's take a look. Uh, okay. You scare her. You say to her, or the Omimla. Piti, my daughter. Harba Yayanosa, you know, wine often has a big effect, meaning like, basically they're trying to get her to admit, but we know it's hard to admit that you like, you know, you willingly did such a, you know, terrible sin or betrayal of your spouse or whatever, so we're giving her extenuating circumstances. Like, you know, they're saying, you know, it's a, look, sometimes people sin, they drink too much, they do things that they regret in the morning or whatever, like, so making it possible for her to say, for her to say yes, she did it, but not, you know, not feel the full weight of the responsibility in coming across with the admission. You know, sometimes wine causes a lot of people to act in ways they wouldn't have acted. Harbe schok osa, or, you know, being too frivolous. Harbe yaldus osa, if you're young and, you know, maybe your passions get in control of you. Or you're not, you know, harbe shchenim araimos, and sometimes we're egged on by our, you know, by, by, by our bad company and our neighbors, and, you know, they, you know, you know incite us to do things. So, asigli 
now basically do the right thing, do for the na- name of God's great of God's great name, Shenichta that would be written in holiness, Shalimachel Amayim, should not be scraped into the water. So it's interesting that the focus here is why do we want to get her to admit, right? Um, you know, why you want to get a normal person you suspect of committing a crime to admit is it saves you the the uh, the cost of the trial and it saves you the possibility that you know you're going to lose, right? I mean, well, that's why the prosecution tries to get somebody you know to you know to to, to, to plead guilty and they'll make a plea bargain or whatever over whatever. It's terrible. I'm, I'm not going to run it. There's uh, been a lot written about how they, they get so many innocent people to plead guilty because of the whole way the system is you know is, is biased against you once you're caught up in that system. But anyway, um, so but here, like, what's the benefit if we trust that the ritual the, the water is going to work? Why are we why are we trying to get it to admit? Now you could talk about well, you know, it's better at least for somebody's own you know sense that they own up on themselves and they're found guilty just you know from from a, a human perspective you know that is or you could say well I don't know maybe the other things we said the water doesn't always work maybe we don't want her to die you know but it's interesting here that, that the focus is totally on we don't want to have to erase God's name without a purpose so if there's a way to prevent her from admitting before God the name is erased that's what we're going to try to do um, so so that it should not be dissolved in the water and they say to her things that are not fit to being heard that she is not fit for hearing okay either the words or she is not fit for hearing these words he and the, her entire family so what are those things that are not fit for being heard we'll see in the Gemara but they scare the wits out of her if she says she writes a receipt for her ksuva not that she got the payment she loses her ksuva Okay, and she gets divorced. She can, she admitted she's divorced. Doesn't get her ksuva. End of story. If she says she's tahor, no, I'm innocent. You bring her to the eastern gate of the mikdash, which is opposite Sha'ar Niknur, Right, basically the way the mikdash is. If you think about it, right, if this is like the whole thing, if this is the east, right. So this you walk in, and this is the Ezrat Nashim. So this is like the eastern gate when you get into, you know, the Beit Hamikdash, and then like midway here at the end of the Ezrat Nashim, you have some steps up, and you have like the Azara where they actually, you know, the altar is or whatever, and the Ezrat Yisrael, and at the top of those steps. You have the Shar Niknur, the Niknur Gate, which is leading from the Azat Nashim, the top of the steps, into the actual Azara. Okay? So it says by the Sota, it says that she is presented Lifnei Hashem, before God, which ultimately is going to mean standing in the Niknur Gate, which is opposite, you know, the, um, the, uh, in the time of the, in the Torah would have been the Olamoe, now it would be in the Heichal. Okay? Um, so, um, and the Mizbeach. Um, okay, so you bring her to the Eastern Gate, which is, which is, Court, which is opposite the Sharniknur, Shapetok um, Sharniknur, Shisham Mashkinita Sotot. Now, in the Sharniknur, there they, you cause the Sotot to drink, Umatarinita Yoladot, and you purify the women who have given birth, Umatarinita Mitsurain, and you purify those that are the lepers. What does that mean? The, the gate of Niknur is a, the, the width of the gate. I don't know if has anybody ever been through sometimes these city gates, you know, these ancient city gates, you know, it's like you could have like three feet of stone, 
You know what I'm saying? Like it's really, really big. So, the, so Sharon Ignore was, was like, uh, you know, there was, it was a, it was, it was, a, it was a gate in a wall. So there was a thickness. So that area, that thickness in that gate was actually, did not have Kedushat Azara. It had the Kedusha of Ezrat Nashim, which was not the Kedusha of the Azara. So therefore that allowed people that were not totally Tahor to come and stand there while the procedure that was finished to purify them was done. So for example, a woman who had given birth who needed a Korban. Now, in theory, she could have sent somebody to bring it, but this allowed her to be there in that gate as her Korban was being brought, right? Because she couldn't enter into the Azara itself, but she could be standing in that gate. Um, it allowed a Mitzora who was not able to yet go into the Azara, and here you needed him there because you needed to put the blood of the Korban on his thumbs. Well, how could you do that if he couldn't stand in the Azara? So he stood in the thickness of that wall, of that gate, and he put his thumbs out, and, <laughs> and they put the blood on his thumbs while he was standing in the thickness of the wall. Um, that's actually a whole halachic question, whether bia b'niktash mabia, whether partial entry into the Beit HaMikdash when your Tameh is considered like an entry or not because his thumbs went in. Um, anyway, so here also is where the Sota would stand. Now what's quite fascinating, I should say, about this comparison is that... I guess oh, the same way. Right? Stuck out, yeah, stuck out his foot. So, okay. It's not both at the same time. That's right. <laughs> so, so, the interesting thing here about the comparison, we've been comparing this to a judicial case, but now it's being compared to a different case, to a Tumantara case. And notice the phrase, Tmeya'ani, Tahora'ani. Now, that's echoing the Torah's language, right? you know, you know, but it's very different. This is not a purification process. This doesn't make her pure. I mean, it sort of proves she's innocent, which is like making her pure, but she halachically is allowed to enter into the Beis HaMikdash. She does that have a Tum'ah, that means she can't enter into the Azara. She's not like a Yoledis and a Mitzorah. Tum'ah means defiled because of having committed adultery. So it becomes very interesting that we're also now trying to put it in a Tum'ah category, right, and talk about the fact that seeing her situated where other Tzmeim are situated. Um, and again, maybe this is, and this gets to this question before, maybe this is to try to deal with this sort of magic of the Sota water. So before it was said, maybe a way we deal with it is we emphasize the Din and we background the whole focus on that process, which maybe, maybe will come at the end if we don't succeed in stopping it any time earlier. But what this also maybe does is allows us to reframe it as a Tahara process. You know, Tahara processes, we know they're weird Tahara processes, there's one where you send birds off and you dip them in blood, right? There's ones where, you know, you put the, you know, you put the blood on the fingers. So here's the process. She brings a mincha and you write some words on a parchment and you have her drink it, right? If you think of it as a Tara process, not as a, not as some like, you know, trial by ordeal, it also situates it, situates it in a place which is more understandable and something more recognizable. So it's very interesting here that we are now making this explicit comparison to these other Tmeim. Okay. Yes, it is true that there's a question like whether, you know, women are allowed in the Ezra's Israel, um, whether they needed special reason to, or just as a general practice they weren't, or whatever. But again, that would not be because, uh, so, maybe, maybe, you know, but it doesn't sound like, in general, we don't have a problem. If a woman needs to be in the Azara, she would be in the Azara. Um, so, it does sound like the comparison is going further than that. It's not like, oh, there was a problem, she's a woman, we didn't want her in. Um, yes. Yeah, it would be the same as the as the thumb. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, 
Okay. The coin ochiz bivakadeha. Now the coin grabs onto her garments. The nikru nikru. The nifru nifrimu If they were rended, they were rended. If they were torn in half, like nifrim is like not just a, a not just not just sort of torn a little bit, but like ripped, like totally like you know a very big severing into two pieces. Okay, he would tear her garments, and no matter how much they they tore um, or hold on to her garments, even if they tore the coin ochiz. Um, okay. Until he basically would expose her heart, literally expose her chest. So we'll see about that in a minute. So it's interesting because here it sounds like if by accident it tore, but now it sounds like explicitly he's tearing her garments. Um, why else is he holding it if not to tear it? The soter et ara, and he would undo her hair. He would expose her hair, um, which is right in the Torah. Um, if her heart, but literally like her bosom was 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 attractive, he would not expose it. Okay, because you know this is an interesting question, right? This is all done to sort of to degrade her, but in the process you're you're uncovering things that are normally covered. And how much is this also becoming an erotic experience for the people that are around, right? So that becomes a whole tension going on here. Um, and if her hair was beautiful, he would not undo it. Um, if she had been wearing white garments, you dress her in black garments. I don't know where they would do this change of clothes before they got to the base of Mikdash. Presumably not after he ripped her garments. Presumably before he did the ripping, she was wearing these more unpleasant clothes. It's not exactly clear at what stage here they're doing this. If she was wearing nice, uh, you know, golden jewelry, um, the, the katliot and various types, various rings and chokers and whatever, earrings, you remove them from her in order to uh, dishevel her in order to make her look um, you know uh, uh, what's a good word for nivul what, uh, repulsive. repulsive okay now the interesting thing is here it seems like it wasn't just that she comes in without this that there's actually a process of degrading her by stripping her of these things right that sort of seems to be very much the process and then afterwards you would take this type of a of a Egyptian rope a certain type of a rope and you would bind it above her, her breast you know, to hold up the garment so it would not continue to fall down which is funny like that probably was after they got ripped so probably this whole thing about wearing the black clothes and taking off the jewelry was probably before right or else you know there's a little bit of a gap of time there so probably first you would do the, the, the black clothes and take off the jewelry then he'd rip the garments and then afterwards tie them up again so they wouldn't fall down and now it's making a public spectacle of it which is not in the Torah the Torah does not have it as a public spectacle this makes a public spectacle of it and that's also interesting to talk think about because is this particularly doing something different right and this very much fits into issues we were discussing and it goes from a private enterprise between a husband and a, a jealous husband and his wife to a type of a din well din is something in which is done but in front of the public and we actually know what do we know about din we know that there's some cases the Torah explicitly says what does the Torah say it says sometimes some of the purpose of punishment is to serve as a you know as a public warning um, and um, so maybe so it's partly the 
this shift that might have a lot to do with the shift again from this private thing between husband and wife to then we are now turning it into a public spectacle. It is though interesting to think about two other points about this, but making it a public spectacle. One is, um, what's his name? Uh, somebody, oh, I can't remember, some biblical scholar recently, uh, not so recent, anyway, you know, writes a lot about how um, Chazal turn a lot of things that go on in the Mikdash, they make them more public. Specifically, for example, if you think, we mentioned Yom Kippur before, but he does, talks about the other Chagim as well, which are things which is like, you know, right, just totally him and God going in and so on. And we have, like, everybody is gathered there to hear the reading of the Torah, to see the red string turn white, to see him select for the goats. Right? We, we turn it into a public sort of ritual. So on the one hand, this also fits that pattern. It's in the base of Mikdash, but we're bringing the public into it and making it a public ritual. The other thing that's interesting and that I forgot to mention before is a very important insight by um, Yishai Rosenzvi, who wrote a book on Masechet Sotah called Hatekas Shalohaya, the ritual that never happened. Um, and he, and he um, says that if you look at the Mishnah, and we will see more of this in the Gemara, the Mishnah assumes from the very beginning that she's guilty. And the whole purpose from the Mishnah for this ritual is basically not to clarify if she's innocent or guilty, but to punish her. The purpose of the Sota water is, is that she gets her due punishment. Okay, so he says the Mishnah never suggests what happens if she's innocent. What happens if it works out that she did not commit it. So, and he says, think about the, the way we scared her beforehand. What did we say when we scared her? We said, you know... You know, please, we understand why you might have sinned. Just admit it. Don't make us have to erase the name. We never say, oh, but if you actually are innocent, then you should go through with it so you can be back with your husband, right? When we scare the witnesses, we scare them in both directions. Here we only scare her in one direction. We're assuming that she's guilty. So if you assume that she's guilty, you understand why you want to make this a public ritual, right? Why you want to make this a public spectacle. Because if it's just a court case to clarify, everybody else doesn't have to be around. But if we know what's going to happen, right, think about when you, they had the public hangings, right, that would be like the entertainment of the month, right? We know what's going to happen, so A, to, you know, to, for a punishment for her, everybody should be gathered, and, you know, for the lesson for the am. So again, if the presumption of her guilt also is what makes this a public spectacle. <laughs> What? Oh, okay. Oh, right. Or you could say maybe it's all of this is just to, is just all of this is that you, you wanted to admit. That's true too. That just diminishes your overarching point, right? How does it do? How? Because it, it, it um, mitigates the integrity of the judicial process by assuming that she's guilty. Yeah. Makes it more terrible. Well, because of the Kino and the Stira. But, um, I know, but so what? Right. Uh, look, we'll, we'll quote, the Gemara's going to quote the Tosefta and other, there are other Tanaitic opinions that, come, that are constantly saying, wait, she might be innocent. Why are we all making, why, why are we taking this? But yes, that's a good point. I mean, it, you're right. It does sort of make it less about din and more directly just about judgment, about punishment rather than about adjudication. Right. That's true. Okay. So that was his insight, uh, Yishai Rosenstri. But again, what is worth noting is we took something that is a private thing between husband and wife in the Beit HaMikdash and we've turned this into this public spectacle, okay, which very much does fit the idea, Kolam Yishmu Viro and the Din idea and so on, and the punishment idea. Anybody who wants to see, come and see. We don't allow her servants to be there. Because that sort of bolsters her sense of 
confidence. Her servants are there. A, she maybe not doesn't want to admit because her servants are there. B, it makes her feel, oh, you know, I'm still an important person. I've got my servants. So it will make her not want to, you know, it, you know be, be cowed by the, by, by the proceedings. And all the women can come and see her. So the Gemara says, we just said everybody could come and see her. But okay, we'll talk about that tomorrow. All the women should come and see her. And all the women will take Musar, will take heed, and will not do like her, uh, like her fornication. Okay, so this is a Pasuk in Yechezkel, not exactly about this, but whatever. Um, and um, so, uh, so again, that, uh, it's, like a, it's almost saying, Kolan, Yishmu Viro. Right? It turns it into that din of Kol Ha'am Yishmu Viro. Let's take a look at the Gemara, try to get a little bit further. Minani Mili, where do you know this from? So, Amar Rebbe Chiyabar Gamda, Amar Rebbe Yosef, Rebbe Chanina, how do you know that you bring her to the Basin Agado, which is again, asserting Basin's, you know, oversight and really, you know, sort of running the whole show. Ask your Torah Torah. Ksif Hachav, Asalach, Oen, he's called Torah Hazos. The coin shall do all of this teaching, all of this ritual. Ksif Hachav, Apiya Torah Shayiruch. It says by the Zakin Mamre, by the Torah that he teaches, that, that they teach you, you should do. The same way the Zakin Mamre is only if he rebels against the Sanhedrin HaGadol. Afkan B'Shim Vechad, here to Apiha Torah, A Torah Hazot, means that it's ultimately overseen by the Beitin HaGadol. Now, here's an interesting question about how central their role is. Because if you think about it, what did they do? All they did was they warned her. Right? That's their whole role, to warn her? Big deal. Right? So far, based in, I've always it's been from one based in to the next based in, they're asserting their presence, you know, but how much are they really doing? Right? They're protecting them from having sex along the way. They're warning her. Okay? So Tosos has another question. Tosos is bothered because he says the chronology doesn't work because he says the uh, halacha of Zakin Mamre is only when the Sanhedrin is situated in the Beit HaMikdash. We actually know that the Sanhedrin like, uh, left the Beit HaMikdash you know, while, you know, before the Chorban Abayis because they didn't want to have to deal with the responsibility of dealing with Dinei Nefashot. But as the evidence points to the fact that they, were still, that they could still be doing Sota rituals you know, at, a late, at that later time. So how could that be? It's not fitting this pattern of the Zakin Mamre of the Sanhedrin in the Beit HaMikdash. So if you take a look at Tos so let's see what he says. He says, um, So it says, um, that they have to be in the in Yerushalayim. So in vain, if that would be true, the water should have stopped being effective when the Sanhedrin left the base of Mikdash. And then he proves that, that that doesn't seem to work out. So just skip to the bottom. And he says like this, three lines from the bottom of the Tosos, you know what? The role of the Sanhedrin, the warning, would not be ma'akeh, would not prevent you from going forward. If they didn't do this whole warning, if the Basin of wasn't involved in the process, she could still go through with it. So, the whole thing, it's almost like ex- exactly paralleling, you know, at one level, we like concede, you can do it without the whole Basin. <laughs> Just go straight to the Basin of Mikdash. You don't need a Basin in your ear, you don't need the Basin to accompany, you don't need a base in a guddle to warn. It really is just in the base of Mikdash, right? He's conceding that this Eum, the role of the base in a guddle, really was not, if you didn't do it, it would still work. It was really not a necessary function. So at the same time, we are making it about based in and putting them front and center in the entire process, right? There's a recognition that technically, actually, it could all go through without the based in. Which, by the way, answers, and with this point, we'll 
end, the previous Tosos, I think, Jen also gets to a question you were sort of implicitly raising. Malalim Bashim Vecha, Tosos says, Tema, Amailo Tani Lusotov is Akin Mamre, Lusotov is Akin Mamre, comes to Sanhedrin, Badi Hanu Dabi Basin Shoshim Vecha. Why don't we list Sot and Zakin Mamre in the cases of uh, something that needs a basin of 71? Okay? We wouldn't do the end of the judgment. The end of the sota would be in the base of Mikdash. Zakin Mamri would go would be in a different location. But I think it's a question about like the Sanhedrin lists the type of things that require a basin of seventy one, right? Some you know certain types of uh, 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 you know certain capital crimes and so on need a basin of seventy one. Why doesn't it say sota needs a basin of seventy one? So the real answer is what the second tosos just told us. Because at the end of the day, she's not being adjudicated in the basin and the basin is not really necessary at the end of the day at the end of the day it really is a temple ritual so it's quite fascinating you're sort of seeing it at the same time it's being, the whole thing is being presented as a din ritual and an acknowledgement that really at the end of the day you can do away with that entire layer and it could exist as a pure type of a, a, a base HaMikdash ritual okay we will end with that today maybe the role of the basin is to make it more, more public more as more, more a warning to the rest of the population well, that's what I was saying, that it becomes like a public ritual, like Kolani's movie, Euro. The only purpose is to, to warn the rest of the population. Yeah, that's 